buying a $100,000 car is really not that dissimilar from buying a $3,000 car. It's the same process to buy it. It's just you have to have more money for one versus the other. My first foots were in the ghetto. Now I've gotten to the point where buying apartments and big buildings now, the same transaction as me buying any of these other properties. It takes just as much to do a small deal as it does to do a big deal. Why wouldn't I do these bigger deals? Because from a time equation, it makes so much more sense. Once you can see the matrix that money is comprised of, it's really hard to think that you will ever go broke again. You can't unsee the matrix once you've seen it, money. And so most of people's pursuits through life should be to just start to see the matrix on one thing because there's not a material difference between a couch as a transaction and a house as a transaction once you understand the language and the code of deals. Until people can see that first level of the matrix, they might as well be Russian and French. And they want to hear that there's steps one through 12. And the truth of it is, is that there's no steps one through 12. It's just, can you learn? So what's the difference between your first million and the next 50? I think the first million is all about what your outputs are. To get to 20, you have to In order to get to 50, I think you have to. Today, I have somebody who is super duper famous on Instagram and TikTok, and her YouTube channel is blowing up. She is the person to talk to when it comes to boring businesses. She owns laundromats. She gets into deals with none of her own money. She came from the finance world and dominated there. She's pretty much done everything, and now she's taken over with just her media empire. We have none other than Cody Sanchez. What's up? Thanks for having me, man. Stoked to be here. Not much. We're going to talk about all that, huh? Yeah. Has anybody given you that quite of good of an intro before? No, I'm a little, I'm like a little peaked. I'm sweating. That was pretty, that was solid. I'm going to have to send that to my husband. All right, good. So for those who don't know who you are, give them a quick rundown. Basically that. I used to be in investments in the traditional sense. So investment banking, finance, run around building a company in Latin America, um, did that for a number of years, most of my career. And then uh, uh, one of my CEOs at the time said that we get rich quietly. And I always thought it'd be more fun to get rich with other people. And so I was like, hmm, I don't like that idea. What if we start sharing some of the stuff that other people don't really share and uh, talk about it publicly and see what happens? And so that's what we started doing. And I guess it came from because way back in the day, I was a human trafficking journalist. So I don't talk about that as much along the U.S.-Mexico border. And so I've always been curious about what does money mean and why do I, with the last name Sanchez, have this life and they, with the last name Sanchez, have a different life. Right. Uh, so it's kind of come full circle. Yeah, I was actually in Mexico about three weeks ago building houses in Rosarito. And like you just see just like literally, you know, a few miles from the border, just the difference in, you know, quality of life. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it, there's really one big difference. It's not that they're Mexican and we're American. It's that their society hasn't distributed wealth as much and hasn't actually brought everybody up through a capitalistic lens, in my opinion. And so I wanted to understand what money meant because I think it actually means power. It doesn't really mean Lamborghinis and we're here in Vegas and all the fancy stuff. It's actually more about do you get to decide what to do with your day or to somebody else? Right. I think that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. I actually was telling that to somebody. Actually, I said it on my Instagram today. I was like, hey, I'm out at the golf course and You know, I'm going to go to work later today, but this is what being an entrepreneur is all about. I can go to the golf course in the morning and still do what I want for my job, you know? 
Yeah, it's a trade. I mean, I think you trade your time for a certain amount and then you can trade your expertise and then you can trade your money. And so you don't have to be involved if your money is the one working for you. And that's the end goal, I think, for a lot of humans. And then you get to work on the stuff you want to. Like you probably don't have to work anymore if you don't want to. I probably don't have to if I don't want to at my current lifestyle, but I like this. And so now I get to choose my action because of a lot of years of input. Right. So tell people a little bit about what you were doing on Wall Street. Yeah. I did a bunch of different things. So when I first started out on Wall Street, uh, I made, I think we were talking about this earlier, like $38,000. It was super rich. <laughs> and uh, and I came from, you know, my dad didn't get a chance to go to college. I didn't know what a mutual fund was. I had no idea about the stock market and I wanted to learn. And so I started out climbing through a bunch of the large corporations. First, it was Vanguard. I think they're the, the largest asset manager uh, in the world now, if not maybe the second behind BlackRock. And then I went to Goldman Sachs. And after Goldman, I went to State Street and then I started out uh, on my own firm and built a business in Latin America. And most of my career was built spending asset management firms, which is just kind of like a fancy way of saying that we take other people's money in uh, with a goal of investing in it and making them more. And so we did that across emerging markets, private equity, um, stocks. And I spent a long time building a business in Latin America that was cool. We um, It was out of Chile, Brazil, Colombia. Uh, Uruguay, Mexico, and basically we sold to the pensions or sovereign wealth funds. So the really, really, really rich government institutions down south, and we taught them how to invest. Then we took their money and invested it, and I built out those businesses. And so um, that led me to sort of understand how could I do that for myself and maybe for others. Yeah. So at what point did you realize like, all right, you know, Wall Street's cool and I'm making money, but I, I don't really want to do this anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think early. It just took me a long <laughs> just took me a long time to figure out how to get out of it. You know, they talk about the golden handcuffs, right? And so when I was in finance after a while, I was making pretty good, pretty good cash. And so when you're making high six figures and then, you know, low to mid seven figures, it's hard for you to think about that there's a whole world outside of suits and Excel spreadsheets. And in finance in particular, they kind of trick you into thinking that you can't make this money anywhere else. Mm. Especially when I like when I worked at Goldman, being at Goldman. And investment banking was like the thing, you know, now that now like all the tech guys tell them to pound sand and like wear their flip flops to work. But yep. that really wasn't the case. And so um, I realized early I didn't want to do it. I mean, I lived in Chicago. I remember for Goldman on one stint and I didn't see the sun for like four months. I had to take vitamin D supplements and have uh, a light at my desk <laughs> because you weren't Latina anymore. No, I was super white bread. <laughs> Only mayonnaise. And um, and basically what happened, though, is, you know, you just had deals that you'd have to run. And so you couldn't really leave the office. And so I think I realized that in Chicago and then I kept going to smaller and smaller firms thinking, well, if I just get to a more boutique firm, then I'll like it. And then I realized, oh no, 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 no. I'm just unemployable and I need to work for myself. And that finally happened for me when I had no more partners in like 2016, 17. Got it. Yeah. So that was when you started all these boring businesses. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I think everybody knowing, listening here probably knows private equity, but basically the idea behind private equity, right, is like you do it with real estate, we do it with companies, but we take other people's money, we buy boring businesses, things like landscaping, HVACs, plumbing, whatever, and we apply leverage or loans to buy those businesses, and then we make them like a little bit better, and then we combine a bunch of them, and then we sell them. That's private equity. And I did it at a high level where we were doing $100 million transactions or billion-dollar transactions, and then I was like, wait a second, like 
buying a $100,000 car is really not that dissimilar from buying a $3,000 car. It's the same process to buy it. It's just you have to have more money for one versus the other. And so I realized it's kind of the same thing with doing deals. Why don't I just buy some of these for myself? I can make enough money where if I want to quit, I can. And then once I had enough money where I was like, oh, I'm covering my expenses by buying these businesses, like see you Wall Street. And then I went and started doing my own thing. Yeah. It's funny. I kind of had the reverse thought process. You know, you, you were doing these huge deals for these companies. You're like, I can just do smaller deals and own the whole thing. And I started out doing smaller deals on the real estate side, right? We just do entry level kind of flips. Like my first flips were in the ghetto. And because for one, they were cheap. They didn't require a lot of money. And two, everyone was scared of them at the time. They're like, why would you buy a house there? And I'm like, because if just look at the numbers, like it's going to make great money. And I'm going to make the same buying this $100,000 house that you are buying a $300,000 house. Why would I? The ROI is way better. Well, now I've gotten to the point where, you know, we're buying apartments and big buildings now. And, you know, we run these numbers and I'm just like, yeah, you know, we should exit. And this thing might make $10 million when it's all said and done. And I'm just like, this is the same transaction as me buying any of these other properties. Like, it's crazy just... Once the deal size gets bigger, like that's where like the huge wealth comes from. Oh yeah. You're spot on. I think, well, you did it that way, uh, intelligently. And I, I call it the staircase methodology, but essentially in doing deals, you start out with a small deal. So you could buy a website online for $800 or a thousand dollars, right? Then your next deal might be a $5,000 deal. Then you might buy a small business for 30 K or whatever. And you stair step your way into deals. And so you did that in real estate. I did that in SMB. But then at one point you realize, wow, it's all just a ripple. It's the same thing. There's a rhythm to doing deals. And once you understand the rhythm to deals, you can play almost any tune you want. Mm -hmm. And you can play a tune for a long time or you could play a tune for a short time. And uh, and so I think the, the more interesting thing is most people don't realize that they can do deals too. Mm -hmm. And so I like to get people to start early because then they can then they realize what you did, which is, hey, I have an input level of X that doesn't change when I have an output level that's 10X. Mm -hmm. It takes just as much to do a small deal as it does to do a big deal. So why, now that I'm comfortable that I won't lose all my money or go bankrupt, why wouldn't I do these bigger deals? Because from a time equation, it makes so much more sense. Entrepreneurs, if you want to grow your business, there is no better investment than your own personal brand. The smartest thing I ever did was start creating content and investing into my brand. Ever since then, we've been able to triple our business. I've been able to raise more money than ever to continue buying more real estate. And it's all because I create content just like this. Now, a lot of people have asked me, Ryan, how am I supposed to do it? I don't know where to start. I don't know who's gonna edit it. I don't know even what kind of setup or camera or anything to do. Well, here's the thing. We can help you with all of that at Pineda Media. We have a podcast checklist that you can actually get for free at PinedaMedia.com that's going to go over everything you need on starting a podcast. But to make matters even better, we'll actually edit your podcast for you. We'll repurpose it into short form clips like you see on my Instagram and my TikTok so that people will start seeing those clips and watching your podcast and in turn being customers or investors in your business. So if you want the one-stop solution where you can get everything done for you, plus get the education you need to grow your personal brand, then you need to go to PinedaMedia.com and book a free call with our team. You can also go get that free podcast checklist and that training program absolutely free by just going there. So go check it out. I, I totally agree about the stair step because 
before I started flipping houses, my stair step was I was flipping couches. And yeah, that's crazy. You know, like I, I just started buying couches and I got a storage and all this stuff. And sure enough, you know, I was making 200 bucks a day flipping couches. Like this is great money. And I built it up to be in my first real business that actually like was enough. You know, I was making eight grand a month and I was like, man, okay, I, I know how to do this. And you know, I was negotiating every single couch and it taught me the skills to like lowball, make offers, not be afraid and just to talk to strangers. And so eventually, as I said, man, you know, I think I could probably use these skills to negotiate, you know, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar house versus a two hundred dollar couch. And sure enough, I did. And it was like that was kind of the same process, even though it was a different industry to doing this. And so I was like, okay, we go from two hundred dollars profit to twenty thousand dollars profit. Then, you know, I stair step up into other businesses where I'm like, wow, you know, e-learning is a way better profit margin than flipping houses. Wow. E-commerce is like way easier to scale than all the capital needed to buy real estate. And you just start seeing all of this, like, and then, you know, now I'm in the crypto space and I'm just like, wow, this is nuts with what's happening on the blockchain and like how early we are to this. And so it's definitely been a stair um, case for me. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. We call it seeing the matrix. So once you can see the matrix that money is comprised of, it's really hard to think that you will ever go broke again. Yeah. Uh, Because you understand how the zeros and ones are connected in the same way that an engineer understands how to build a website. And I do not. And you can't unlearn that ability to build a website once you've learned it. And I think you can't unsee the matrix once you've seen it with money. And so most of people's pursuits through life should be to just start to see the matrix on one thing because there's not a material difference between a couch as a transaction and a house as a transaction once you understand the language and the code of deals. Mm-hmm. But the part that I found interesting is – until people can see that first level of the matrix, they might as well be Russian and French. <laughs> and so, you know, getting people to understand frameworks is so much harder than getting people to follow steps. Mm-hmm. People love to say, okay, how do I close this client? Well, I do an open end here and a closed end here, and then I do a circle loop. And they want to hear that there's steps one through 12. And the truth of it is, is that there's no steps one through 12. It's Mm -hmm. just, can you learn the frameworks of money? And then you'll never be broke again. And so I think you teach people that. I try to teach people that uh, because that's really the only skill that matters. Yeah. And I think too, there's this other skill that people don't realize with that, where it's like, you and I kind of don't really even know what we're doing, right? Like we're just kind of figuring it out as we go along. There's no way I know steps one through 10 on pretty much any business. All I know is like, okay, I kind of know where 10 is and what I want to get to. And I know what I'm supposed to do in step one, but two through nine, I'm pivoting and adapting and just kind of moving along. And then 10 probably isn't even going to be where we end up. Yeah, that's it's so true. You know, the one thing that I do think people look over is, you talked about it early on, but I call it the difference between um, narrative and numbers. And so when I've been successful in my career ever, it's because there's a narrative that is different from what the numbers monetarily tell me. So you talked about the narrative of I buy homes in the ghetto because people are scared of them. And so the narrative is these are bad deals because the area is scary. Mm-hmm. And I did business in Latin America for a long time, like in Colombia, where the narrative was narcos, scary, drug trafficking. We don't want to do deals there. When in reality, when I looked at the numbers, I'm like, man, 
These deals are so much more profitable because there is no competition and I do not have to be the most intelligent person in the room. In fact, I could be one of the C-level operators instead of an A-level operator, but I can win because everybody else is scared of the narrative and I am only looking at the numbers. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a life hack for people is to figure out where do you see sort of through the narrative that the numbers look good. But for instance, in crypto, let's say, let's say everybody's hating on crypto now because NFTs are down and crypto and Bitcoin's down. Can you see through parts of that narrative and say, wow, but the numbers are really good over here. And so you don't have to be a top level NFT or, you know, crypto specialist because you see this thing numerically that other people don't. And I think that was attributable to a lot of my success. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's, it's difficult with all the noise around us with social media, the media, and everyone's like, oh, we're in a recession. The real estate market's crashing. The VCs aren't giving out any more money. They're all broke. <laughs> it's just like, it's so easy to fall into that. And it's like, well, you know, if I just look at the data and the numbers and the opportunity that I have in front of me, can I wipe everything out and make my own decision that is unbiased from any other outside influences. Oh yeah. I mean, we, it's actually interesting. If you go look at, um, vintages, so, you know, um, the years that a fund started in VC or PE, and you look at, let's say a vintage that was 2008 or 2009, the best vintages or years to invest in these PE or VC funds were following a recession. So you had some of the best vintages in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, because they were investing into the recession, right? As opposed to if you were an investor prior to that, you have what we call an investment hangover, which is basically you have all these bad deals on your back, like too many shots of tequila the night before. And um, you have to work your way philosophically through the fact that you've got to somehow get out of these deals, but the best the, the best time to be an investor is when everybody else is pulling out from the market 100%. Oh, yeah. All day. And, you know, you brought up a good point, too. I've seen this with a lot of business owners and things where, you know, if things are bad, they just can't shake it, right? And, and I learned this back when I was playing baseball, right? When you're in a slump, it sucks, mm-hmm. you know, because you, you just can't get out of it. You got this, you know, hangover, like you said. It sucks. And, you know, eventually, if you're mentally strong, you can get out of it and, you know, persevere. And you know that business and life is going to be like that. You're going to have ups and downs, but you know, how well you're able to deal with trials is going to dictate your success. And, you know, I think with business people, they just let like one thing really ruin them, whether it's just like a client leaving a bad customer review, um, an employee quitting, right? And it just tears them apart where it's like, man, I, I really try to focus on keeping my mind so clear of all those things and like delegate all the bad stuff off to other people. It's like, don't even tell me about the bad things that happen every day because running a business is just nonstop problems. That's why we get paid. It's just problem solving. And I'm like, don't even tell me, like, let me just be oblivious to <laughs> a lot of things. Only come to me if like, we really need me to step in to do something. Cause it just like allows me to be innovative and like clear, keep a clear head and, you know, be able to talk to you and not be thinking about, oh man, dude, we just lost that deal. Like, what are we going to do? We got to raise the money. We're about to close tomorrow. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think there's something to, that's why I like having a COO in almost all of my businesses and certainly a CEO if I can, because they're there to deal with the hair and I'm there to deal with like the forward execution. And so 
I think you're exactly right. It's interesting to think about it from a sports perspective because you're right. I bet if you look at the numbers, like if you're in a slump, your likelihood to continue the slump, I'm sure numerically you could show that, um, you know, if you have somebody go up a bat who historically has a better batting average than the other guy, but they're in a slump for mm-hmm. a period of time and you were to bet on who's going to do better, even though this guy has a higher batting average than this guy, the one that's in a slump is probably more likely to whiff or yep, strike out or whatever. Yep. And so I think it's the same with investors. The interesting thing that I've thought about is, and I talk to my team about it a lot too, is how can you turn all of these problems that you have into little mini experiments? Like, oh, cool. We have a chance to break into something new because this little experiment we tried didn't work. It's not that we failed. This experiment didn't work. So next experiment. Mm -hmm. And because I'm never over levered or because I don't take too big of swings that could make me go bankrupt entirely, um, you know, I don't have existential risk. Yeah. And so nobody's going to be able to kill me and nobody's dying in business. Typically, I know we do TikToks, really important business, but typically like it's going to be fine. Yeah. TikTok's not working. A deal went sideways. It's not going to ruin us. And so no. can you see it as an experiment? Yeah. Wealth Builders, if you are trying to grow your real estate investing business, then you need to join us at Wealthy Investor. You have no idea what Wealthy Investor is. It is our coaching program and community. We have helped thousands of students worldwide grow their business. Now, it doesn't matter if you're just getting started and you're trying to get that first deal. We can help you do that. If you're trying to scale your business and go from a few deals a year to a few deals a month or even seven figures a year, we can help you do that too. In fact, last year alone, we had over 30 students do over a million dollars in revenue. And I'd love for you to be the next one. So it's pretty simple. If you're trying to grow your business and wholesale more homes or flip more homes or buy more rental properties, then you need to go to wealthyinvestor.com and book a free call with our team. It's super simple. We'll go on a strategy call with you and figure out how we can help you grow according to your needs. So All you got to do is go to wealthyinvestor.com, book the free call with the team, and we'll see you there. So you mentioned earlier, boring business would be like a laundromat, an HVAC company, things that people aren't really looking at. Me personally, I've seen it and I've, you know, I've seen you talk about it. I had um, investment joy on here talking about his vending machines and laundromats. And I look at it and I'm just like, not for me, but what am I missing? Well, I don't think you're missing anything. I think if Investment Joy was telling you that you should own vending machines and laundromats, he's off his rocker. (laughs) Three million people online. Those are great stair steps. That is the first step in what I call the gateway drug to business ownership. And so, you know, you want to own a vending machine when you're a 15 year old or, you know, out of college or starting your first business and you Mm -hmm. need to understand your P&L and you can't put a lot of money down on the line and you need a low risk business. Vending machines, cool. Then you might want to own a laundromat because that's sort of the next step up to owning a business that's maybe pretty straightforward, doesn't have to be super expensive. If you don't understand a coin going into a washing machine <laughs> and cleaning it, you probably shouldn't own any business. What, what are these laundromats making? Well, it depends. Like I have one laundromat. It's well, it's a group of three of them that does three million dollars a year revenue. Okay. Uh, you know, anywhere from let's call it thirty to sixty percent profit margins, depending Crazy. on yeah. And so they do well. Um, and then they're adding uh, different services to them. So the way that I think is interesting to do boring businesses is we talk about, it's called the BRRT method. So boring businesses that are recession resistant, where you can raise prices and add technology. And so this methodology basically means if you own a laundromat, you buy a laundromat, it's boring. It does $100,000 a year, let's say. 
It's recession resistant because nobody wants you to be smelly running out of clothes. <laughs> right. Then you raise prices because um, typically it's pretty price inelastic, meaning you can go from 25 cents to 50 cents a wash and people will still wash there. Right. Then you add technology, which might mean you add wash and fold or you partner with a dry cleaning service or you mm-hmm. add the vending machine to it or you add the credit card processing instead of coins or money, um, you know, soft money. And so – that's the methodology. So we have ones that do three million, and then my first laundromat, I think it made you know sixty k ish in uh, revenue. I'm sorry, in profit, but I had an operator, so I took home like thirty thirty thousand dollars or something like that from it. So huge variance, and laundromats are never going to be a fifty million dollar business unless you have a giant enterprise of multiple yeah, laundromats. Right. Then that's why I think they're a gateway drug. They're not the and yeah, you're well, not looking to scale how many laundromats you own. No, not me personally. I mean, there's certainly there's a use case that you could say for car washes. Like there's a car wash company called Mr. Car Wash that's worth billions of dollars that went public. Uh, and they did that through taking a bunch of car washes, wrapping systems and processes around them and charging a reoccurring revenue model. Yeah. I, it's funny you mentioned that. So right before you came in, I just filmed a YouTube video um, with my friend Houston. He owns these franchises called Houston's hot chicken. And, um, recently just started a couple years ago. They now have over a hundred franchises and, you know, he's telling me about the franchise game and I'm like, Holy crap. Like these guys make that much money. And like the ROI is insane because he was telling me like, yeah, you can pretty much, you need about 450 grand to start it up and you know, you can get an SBA loan on it. So it's like, all right, I'm into this thing for call it a hundred G's. And he's like, yeah, our stores, like a, a McDonald's might make one and a half million dollars a year, but ours are making three mil a year. And I was like, so what do you net? He's like, dude, I mean, they make 60, 80 K a month. I was like, what <laughs> these, how many can I buy? Like, where do I get them? Because these like, I'll, I love chicken number one, but I love money. And so seeing how much these things make, I, I just couldn't believe it. And then he goes, yeah, dude, it's crazy. He's like, car washes are crazy too. And he starts telling me, he's like, yeah, car wash business. Like, that's why you see him popping up everywhere in Vegas. There's tons of dust. Cars are always getting dirty. They just do the monthly recurring model and you need one person to operate it. That's exactly right. Yeah, we own, I own six. Um, the car wash model is really interesting too because you can scale up or scale down. So if you want to start out, you can have an automatic, you know, three bay car wash where everything is automated. You have little coin um, inserts that you have, you know, um, little smelling, uh, I forget what those are called, things that you hang in your car. You can have wipes that come out of it. Those, The margin on those is like 60 to 80% on any of those additives. And the interesting thing about car washes is you can scale from that automatic car wash all the way up to you know a car wash where you have 10 to 15 people employed and those things can make, you know, I was looking at one in California that made $7 million a year, um, but it had a lot of employees. Just the more, it's a more high-end car wash. They got detailing and all exactly. that stuff. Yeah. And they have people on site that are actually doing it. It's the done for you versus the do it yourself model. Right. Do it right. yourself you always, is always the cheapest, but usually has the highest margin. The done for you is the most expensive, usually has a decreased margin. Right. But more revenue. Way more revenue. Yeah. Right. And typically you can build more of a moat around it, you know? Yeah. Like if you have really good services and a you know, kind you get of a, a brand reputation. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But I want to experiment with it. I mean, we were t- joking around with our YouTube channel that I think we might brand some of my car washes, something regarding the channel and yeah. have like pop-ups and think like how much money could we make a car wash have? Like, I think that'd be really funny. Like just go every Avenue possible. Every possible. Like, can I make one car wash to $10 million a year? <laughs> like I have no idea, but I think it'd be fun to try. 
you better sell drugs out of there or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really clean cars. I don't, I don't know. To your point, though, I love going head to head with some of my real estate friends because I'm like, how much money do you have to put down to get a hundred thousand dollars in, you know, cash flow in your pocket a year? And for real estate, you got to have a big down payment and a hefty loan to get a hundred k. I mean, the average. I read the average single-family home rental makes about $600 a month, $400 Mm -hmm. to $600 a month. You know, the average small business, while it can have a much higher failure rate and there's a lot more work, is going to 10x that Mm -hmm. if you buy it. And so I think for you, the interesting play would be what you're already doing, which is buy or build businesses that surround real estate, Mm -hmm. that you'd get to use your same team and some back-end operations or your client base in order to grow your total cash flow while you let the real estate ash, asset appreciate. Yeah, it's interesting because and you, you clearly defined exactly what I'm doing. So for those who didn't know, that's the truth. So it's interesting because I realized this as my real estate career went on, right? Because when I first got into real estate, everyone and their mom was telling me, you want to own rental properties, you want to own rental properties. And I was like, I don't want to make $200 a month. Like, what am I going to do with this? It's not going to change my life. Exactly. And so I was like, I have to flip. And so making 20K a month was definitely life-changing. And I'm like, this is great. Imagine if I did five of these, I can make 100K a month. And sure enough, that was what we did. And I did it and I'm like, this is great. You know, making a million bucks. I'm the man. This is great. And sure enough, I start to get exposed to these other ways of making money, right? And I was like, this is way easier making money with things that are, not necessarily real estate. Like it's easier to make money as an influencer selling courses, car washes, franchises, those things. Like they're way easier. Um, And the more I've thought about it, the more I've been like, man, which one is truly better? Because real estate on one hand, to your point, is safer. Like it's always going to be, you know, in the long run, going to be there. It's going to be worth whatever it's worth. And hard to go to zero. Yeah, it's just not going to go to zero. And you're also going to get appreciation. You're going to get the tax benefits. You're going to get all of that. But then with the businesses, you're going to actually make money because you don't make money holding real estate, like at least active income. You're going to make money in your net worth, but you know, no rental is ever just going to like spit off so much. Even in Airbnb, it's not going to make you rich. No, I agree. You know, I like the, the cash flow to uh, concentrated assets play. So essentially having some businesses that shoot off cash flow your influencer business could be that. Um, the course business could be that. They shoot off a bunch of cash flow. Then you take that cash flow, and instead of needing a bunch of investors, you go and invest in assets that don't have the same return as potentially the sort of cash flowing businesses, but have a different risk profile. Because, you know, I think I started off as an investor. We were talking about this before. And so, like, I love all my babies. You know, I, <laughs> I'm not trying to only have one specific asset class that I play in because. You want to find that asset class when it's at its most vulnerable, right? Mm. And so I want to know enough about doing deals and about reviewing the opportunity cost of investing in various types of investments so that I can know when to lean in and when to lean out. Now, the the difference I think is, for instance, we have a course business at, at Unconventional Acquisitions that talks about buying businesses. That business does a ton of revenue, like comparative to everything else that we have, Um the course business that we have called Cashflow at Contrarian Thinking, I actually think is the more valuable one because what it teaches you is like 12 playbooks a year on all these different asset classes to invest in. 
But again, people want the give me steps one through 12 and they don't realize what they actually should want is teach me how to be an investor. Mm. Teach me how to look at different opportunities and say, this is a bad one. This is a good one across the board. Right. Because that's what the real players do. I mean, the big private equity firms are not sector specific. Mm -hmm. One of my partners, he's the CEO of Sun Capital. Well, his wife was my partner. He is the CEO of Sun Capital, one of the largest private equity firms out there. Um, You know, the founders are billionaires multiple times over, Forbes 100 list. And if you look at the types of investments they have at Sun Capital, it's like, you know, uh, manufacturing for airplane wings and then (laughs) pool cleaning. (laughs) Yeah, no correlation between the two. Why? Because they're like, no, no, we're looking the difference between the narrative and the numbers. And we grab the numbers and we don't care what the fucking widget is. Whatever the widget is just goes into our same process and system. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's when you get sort of that that generational wealth. Yeah, and I think for me, I look at my career playing out in multiple ways now that you're saying this. So, you know, it started out as real estate, not that because I just loved real estate. It was just like the first thing I fell upon that I knew I could make money at. Yep. Um, and you know, now that I've gotten into these other things, like the next phase I'm in is crypto with these businesses we're building in the blockchain space. And I think that all those businesses will make more than all my businesses combined currently, just because the opportunity is so large. And, you know, I look at this and I'm like, okay, if they do what I think they're going to do, I'm going to have like more cash than I've ever had. And what am I going to do with it? And I started to think, I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, obviously I'm going to buy real estate and that's always a given. But then I was like, and maybe I'll start buying some franchises. Maybe I'm going to start, you know, a fund and, you know, buy into these businesses like what you're doing. Because to your point, it's like business is really all the same. Once you break it down, you just look at the numbers, you look at the narrative, you look at the operator, you look at, you know, where that industry is going as a whole. And you're like, yeah, this is a good bet. And then you just make the bet. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm I'm really into, there's a lot of private equity investors or, private market investors that they uh, focus on models. You know, they're like, I have a better model than anybody else, meaning a financial model. I can crunch the numbers and I can get a better return or I can project into the future better than anybody else. That's like what private equity people say. So um, your modeling skills, like how do you know if somebody's good at private equity, like a little secret hack is they only use one hand on the keyboard the whole time that they're doing an (laughs) Excel spreadsheet. And so if you see somebody using two hands, you know that they don't really have a ton of experience with Excel shortcuts and modeling. And so um, we get really proficient in Excel. And then they think that their projections or their spreadsheets are what make a good deal. And I get this all the time on Twitter. I just love trolling these like former investment bankers <laughs> because they get so upset at some of the deals I find. But I believe that all your money's made on the buy, even in private equity. It's mm-hmm. made on the price you get it at and how you find the deal. And then it's made on what you can do with that. So if I find a deal, from a seller that's going to retire, that is going to shut down his business. He's going to sell to me probably at a multiple of his profit that nobody he would sell to nobody else at because he didn't even realize he could sell his business. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to buy a business for pennies on the dollar. It doesn't matter how phenomenal my model is and if I have the numbers crunched directly because it's hard to lose when I buy really cheap. And then I apply our playbook for adding for raising prices and for adding technology. And it's hard for me to lose in that game. And, and that I think is one thing you have too, because anytime you have a niche and an audience, you can draw deals to you. I mean, one of the largest private equity firms out there, they came to me and they wanted me to consult. And so I did it for kind of shits and giggles. And they said, we need to understand how to increase our deal funnel. 
We have all of this money, billions and billions of dollars, um, but we can't get into enough deals to deploy the capital fast enough. And I was like, that's interesting. Talk to me about that. And so they said how they do deals and how they have all these young guys cold calling, you know, people in Nebraska who run plumbing companies (laughs) that do 10 mil or less. And I'm like, well, I see a few major flaws in your plan. One is you guys are all in suits. They're not. Second problem is you don't have a funnel of inflow. You're all pull, no push. You need to have exactly. Mm -hmm. You need to have them come to you. And so I think increasingly, and you're already starting to see it, VC firms started first. They said, we need to create media companies, which is why Andreessen Horowitz changed their license to become an RIA, which allows them to speak publicly about deals. And that was because VCs knew it's all about getting into the best deals. That's going to start happening in private equity. Private equity used to be this moat like real estate was 100 years ago. And now private equity is starting to open up and, and democratize. So they're going to start creating media and they're going to start doing what we do because they need the inflow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It goes back to why you and I are on social media now, right? We realized that from, you know, a couple of years ago during the pandemic, it's like influence is going to be what businesses need. Even billion dollar businesses, to your point, like they need deal flow. They want people to sell to them. Can't do that if no one knows who you are. And if only the insiders know who you are, right? You need the handyman to be like, yeah, you know, they'll buy me. You know, this, this is the guy who buys HVAC companies, and be that go-to source for being that buyer. Totally. And, you know, and I think when you get your mission out there, you know, Andrew Wilkinson, who's a friend of mine, um, has this company called Tiny Capital, and he invests in, you know, he would not like this terminology, but like VC rejects. So basically yeah. companies where they weren't, they, VCs invested in them, and then they weren't big enough to have a billion-dollar exit. So they're called zombie companies, and they kind of like, you know, move around like this. And uh, he buys those companies and restructures the cap table, which basically means he pushes out all the investors for pennies on the dollar, takes the company over, recapitalizes them so that he owns a majority share of them and lets the business continue long term. And he cash flows on them. So he allows these businesses to survive. And one of the ways that he gets a bunch of them is his deal flow is incredible. He was on Twitter. He talks about what he does. He says, I buy businesses that are VC rejects, he uses a different term, uh, that are never going to be able to get out from under the VC thumb. And I give you an answer within 48 hours, yes or no, and we close within two weeks. Mm. And that methodology led to him having a billion-dollar-plus company. So let me ask you this. Um, seeing what you're doing on buying these companies, and then you know I just had the Hormozis on, and they're doing a very similar thing. They have their exact niche. They say, hey, we're buying companies $3 million-plus. We want to help take you to $30 million if you're in the internet space very defined who they're trying to get, right? And so they're getting deal flow, right? They make great content. That's the entire business model. Super smart. For someone like me, who has been just like a guy who started every business, I don't own any business. I didn't start. And I'm the majority holder of everything. Mm -hmm. So do you think that I should continue down that path and just go after starting just behemoths, which is kind of what I'm trying to do in the crypto space? um, Or you know, kind of get on the VC side. What do you think? I mean, I think you could guess my answer. (laughs) I think it's crazy to fund something with a future expectation uh, of a dream realized. And so I like to buy realities. I don't like to buy dreams. And so 
when we look at investing, I want to think, how can I de-risk my dollars in by having immediate cash flow on day one of closing? Mm-hmm. And that's what you can do when you buy a business. So if if I was you, let's say, now in crypto, it's going to be really hard to do. You can't do it in crypto, so you started- Everything's speculation. Everything's right. speculation. Everything's new and everything's overpriced. Right. So that wouldn't work. But if you were going to start a uh, an industrial-focused uh, real estate business, let's say, or if you were going to start an agency that markets real estate, uh, I would say instead of doing that, go and find somebody who's bad at the things that you're good at, that has enough revenue for you to have something real to buy, and then add what you're good at to the business. So you're very good at sales and marketing, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. You have a big audience that does that. So go and buy a business that's run by a 65-year-old that doesn't understand sales and marketing, but has you know, a couple million dollars in in revenue and maybe a million or so dollars in profit and take that business and then 10 exit with your machine. Um, We're buying a business right now that is uh, like human services, communication chat bots. So you know how like you go onto a website and it's annoying. You ask them like, uh, where can I buy this? And they're like, no, there's no toilet paper in the restrooms, you know, and they don't respond correctly. Right. We have an outsourced services firm that does it with humans paired with AI. This company does like $60,000 $60,000 a year profit, nothing. But the the technology is amazing. And I have this ecosystem that I can plug them right into. So I bought that company for $75,000 and I closed within two weeks. And that company now with a few of our contracts will be doing like $300,000. Um, and so I spent $75,000 to get, you know, let's call it $30,000, $35,000 in profit. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't do anything to that business, I get all my money back in two years and everything's cash flow on top of it. Mm-hmm. But that wouldn't be my plan. And so because of us adding some juice to it, you know, now I have made my money back in, you know, let's call it 30, 45 days. You could do that all day long. For sure. So for somebody who's not in our position where maybe deal flow is coming to us, how do you teach people to go find deals? Yeah. Well, I think the easiest thing to do up front is take whatever your skill set is and go find a business in that space. So let's say you're a graphic designer. You want to go and look at sites like Deuce, which is a newsletter site, or Flippa, or Biz by Sell, and you want to look for graphic design firms. You want to already do the thing that you know how to do, but you just want to own the asset as opposed to work for the owner. And so um, I do this a lot with like accountants, attorneys. You already have the skill set to run a business. You just work in the business instead of own the business. And so that would be the first thing that I'd say. That's not usually where people go. They go, I'm going to buy a laundromat. You know, no matter what I do, I'm going to buy a laundromat. And I get why. Cody did it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You talk about them, so you must think it's the best business. It's not that. It's that it's the easiest to understand. So you can either go for what I talk about, my gateway drug businesses, like laundromats, vending machines, car washes, these sort of standard. Things that don't need a skill. Yeah, not a big skill. The only skill being that, you know, you have a marginal level of execution. Right. Or you can go to your skill set <laughs> and buy them. You're not just completely incompetent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and to be fair, you're willing to do like the not so sexy work. That's why yeah. I call them boring businesses. Yeah. You know, you're willing to like go pick up quarters. I love picking investment joy. Apparently, <laughs> he loves it. apparently like 40 million people on the internet love watching people pick up quarters. I mean, it's the weirdest he, thing I've ever seen. Yeah. He, when I had him on the podcast, he was showing me his videos. I was like, you got 30 million views on this? Like, what? (laughs) I can't believe this. I think it's ASMR. I think it's that actually people like the sound of it and the visualization of it. And so it's, it's actually psychological. Um, 
Plus, anytime I'm sure you've seen, anytime I put money in a video, which I viscerally hate doing, uh, the the views go up. They just it's love like, it. Oh, it's so bizarre. But so that's what I would do. Take your skill set or take uh, sort of a gateway drug business. And then the third way that I think people can do it is your personal PL. So for people that don't have an audience, for people that are, are not business owners, look at what you spend money on every single month and ask yourself, is it a boring business? And my methodology for this is called SOWS, which means it's simple. They have outdated systems. It's a worker's business. And there is a straightforward path to growth. And if you find these types of businesses, um, like your landscaper or your plumber, just start getting to know those owners and say to them, like, hey, Tony, you know, you've been running this business for how long? Oh, 20 years. It's awesome. Like, you think about retiring? It's kind of hot here in Austin this summer. <laughs> oh, you are? Your son doesn't want to take over the business? Oh, cool. You know, have you ever thought about selling it? And so you have conversations like that with all the people you used to just interact with. Right. And what you'll find is that more people than not are wanting to sell. In fact, one of every 10 business owners will take a an offer uh, if you ask them. And so that's wild. Think about that. Yeah. Well, and I've seen too, a lot of your videos, you talk about them just doing seller financing, which is great in real estate. And you're talking about getting these businesses for no money. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the numbers are in real estate now, but 60% of all businesses get sold with some component of seller financing. So, mm -hmm. you know, the seller basically gives you money from future profits to buy their business. And this is when people usually on the internet go like, oh, this could never happen. <laughs> and the truth of it is, is it makes perfect sense. You know, you have a business, you have a bunch of businesses. Mm -hmm. Some of those businesses historically, or maybe even now you're like, gosh, this one business makes me money. It's profitable, but it's more work than all these other ones. And my time is limited. A lot of times in these businesses, what people don't realize is these founders may be running the business and making hundred K right. But working 60 hours a week. Mm -hmm. But if they sell and the business can be sold for five to seven X, $700,000 is life-changing for mm -hmm. people. Right. So you can take that capital now and then your ability to redeploy it is obviously higher than probably your ability to earn what you are even with your deal currently, right? Because mm -hmm. you could have taken that, I don't know, make it up the numbers, but 700K and applied it all to your courses. Right. And that might've had a 3X ROI, right. right? And so most people don't know that you can sell your business. They think of it as a job. But almost every business is sellable. Even like if you're a photographer for weddings, you could sell your client list. You could sell, sell a Rolodex of your you know past images mm -hmm. as stock footage. So I do think, and, and like the mission here, you know, from an ego standpoint is just like, how much cooler would it be if every, you know, retiree that just shuts down their business instead sells it? Right. Instead of not getting anything. Right. And, and it, it just helps, you know, the employees. It helps. Just everything. Yeah. And the buyer. Now I don't have to go work for somebody. I get to run an enterprise. Right. Um, and that's pretty life changing. Once more people understand what's entailed in ownership, I think our world changes entirely. Right. So, you know, I'm looking on a couple of things that you sent me and a lot of it I've never heard of before. So I want you to help me understand what is the 70 plus 70 equals 140. Oh, yeah. So um, I think when you're running a bunch of businesses, what ends up happening at first is you panic and you try to do everything. Mm -hmm. And then you hire somebody and that person doesn't do it as well as you. And so you're like, well, I have to fire them because they're not as good as I am. And what I've realized in managing, like, you know, now we have 24 businesses, but we've had hundreds previously, is 70-70 is anytime I have an employee that's at least a 70% solution for me, 
I will think to add another employee to get to 140 mm-hmm. instead of me being the 100% solution. Yeah, it's way better. Mm-hmm. And most, I think, operators don't think that way. They get really upset that people can't do it as well as them. And that should never be part of your equation. As long as you have 70% of you, you actually have an A-plus player, typically. Yeah, no, 100%. That makes complete sense. I've said that a lot. Like, And mine has always been 80. If it's If they're 80... They're good enough. You know, you're never going to find you, right? Or else they'd be doing their own thing. Yeah. So what's the difference between your first million and the next 50? Oh, yeah. Well, I think the first million in a similar vein is all about what your outputs are. So we talked about this initially. You're like, should I go buy these additional businesses? Should I build them? Most people say, should I go earn my first million? You'll, in my opinion, I've rarely met people who go earn their first million. 50 million or even their first 20 million working for somebody else. It's very hard to do. Yeah. Like it's almost impossible. Yeah. You could be Sheryl Sandberg, right? Okay. That would work. (laughs) You could be her. You could be a CEO of a fortune 500 company. That would work. But for most people, the difference between one and 50 is to get to 20, you have to understand how to own something, how to build it or how to buy it. In order to get to 50, I think you have to understand how to invest your money and have other people run your stuff. And so most people don't actually get to the 50 million mark because they try to run all their businesses. They don't. I mean, we were talking about this before. You try to build them all yourself as opposed to invest in other people building it. When you look at Peter Thiel, for instance, you know, he had Palantir. Palantir was a big defense company, is a big defense company that he made a lot of money on. But Peter Thiel's biggest investment was actually him putting money into Facebook early on. And so he put something like $100,000, which led to his largest exit thus far. So I think the biggest difference between that one and 50 is, do you understand how to allocate money to make your money work for you? Right. Otherwise you won't get there. You know, I read a really good book called Outsiders. um, And it was about just like these eight CEOs that outperformed every other CEO, even guys, you know, like Bill Walsh, they thought are just the best CEOs ever. And they basically to break the book down into two seconds, they found that these CEOs were two things. One, they were very good capital allocators. Um, they just knew where to put the company's money that they were spitting off in profit. And you know, most CEOs just don't. They're just not investors. They're good at you know whatever it is they were groomed to do in that industry, but investing is a whole different game, right? So they don't know where to put the dollars. Yep. The second thing was most of these CEOs were very diverse in their skill set. So they came from other industries. They had worked in various things. Like they had a very broad set of experiences and beliefs versus somebody who was maybe started at the company when they're 21, they were being groomed and worked their way up and they became the CEO when they were 40, 50 years old. And that's all they know. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. The more I've gone into multiple industries, the more I've realized like it makes me better in all of them. Cause I'm just like, Oh yeah, no, we did this over here. It's going to work this way over here too. Oh, I, you're spot on. I I'm think, you know, we look for, I think I talked to you about this earlier too, but I have something called the generalist to specialist rule. So I think the best investors and uh, capital allocators are typ- typically generalists that find specialists. So, you know, I know how to go and find a good operator of car washes. Would I be the best operator of car washes? Actually, no. no. Yeah. Um And there's a weird thing that happens with the generalist specialist curve, which is to be a really good investor long-term, I think you actually have to be quite a good generalist. You have to be able to find specialists. To be a good CEO, I actually think you have to be able to go from, first, you do everything. 
Then you get generalists that do lots of different things. Then you start to get generalists that replace, I'm sorry, you start to get specialists that replace the generalists. And then eventually specialists run everything. Mm -hmm. And that leaves you to be a generalist of the next endeavor. And so there's this natural curve where you go from mastering everything to more specific people mastering it, to mastering everything, to more specific people mastering it. And most businesses that don't succeed, that I've seen at least, they aren't able to attract specialists and niche down in their business. They have too many generalists. Mm-hmm. Or the CEO themselves is a specialist and not able to go general. Yeah. And so um, I try really hard to think about that because I think, you know, every in, in my businesses, I've found that like every time we hit 3x growth, so our first, let's say, when we're at, I don't know, uh, a million bucks and then we get to $3 million in revenue, um, we start to break. And then when we hit our next 3x growth spurt, we start to break. And I think that's really natural to happen to businesses. Um, but you don't realize that your first cycle. You're like, oh, sh- oh shit, everything's breaking. And the <laughs> systems don't work anymore. Yeah. You know, and now I'm doing everything and we're making less money, but we have more revenue. What's happening? Yeah. And then you realize that's a natural growth skirt curve. Yeah. Good book, um, Ready, Fire, Aim. Mm. Love, uh, he kind of talks all about that. Just basically- what happens from zero to a hundred million and you talk and I've experienced it too. It's like, holy crap, how do we fulfill all of this? Right? Like we need way more people. And then you get to the point where you realize like, man, okay, let's ramp up the marketing. Dang, we need more sales guys. And then it's just like this thing that happens over and over in all the businesses. And I'm like, pretty much every business is the same. (laughs) They all have a product, they all have a service, they all have a marketing department, they all have a sales department. They got to fulfill it. It's just like, Okay, what are we selling? Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of times these businesses too, um, sadly, like at some point you have to realize that you have too many people or the wrong people. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that other key to getting to that first, let's call it $10 million in revenue, is if you've never fired anybody or you've never let anybody go, you probably not are going to make that $10 million mark because you've kept too many generalists and you haven't done enough specialist role changes. And I think a lot of people... You know, they think that it's always just adding more people, adding more people, adding more people. And what it actually is, and you've felt it with the brokerage firm, I'm sure, is no, no, no. We have to reallocate cap. Not only do we have to allocate capital intentionally, but we have to reallocate it when stuff's really not working. Mm -hmm. And so this is the stuff that you just realize in leadership after a while or as an investor. Um, But, you know, I I try to remind myself, too, when I've had to let people go, which is never fun, um, that you're kind of doing them a disservice if you keep them on in a role, like they feel it. You yeah. Know? You know, you talked about wall street, you know, you got the number crunchers, they, they type on one hand, they're freaking super savvy. Um, do you think that, you know, it's more science and data crunching with these startups or is it just art? And you're just like, yeah, I like the industry. This, this guy, he's, he's good. He's a good operator. Like there's not a ton of data to go on. How do you feel? I think the biggest lie that Silicon Valley ever told was that, picking founders based on their qualitative characteristics is how a good venture capitalist is made. I think that is a complete lie based on outlier CEOs like Travis Kalanick or Elon Musk or Bill Gates. I think the truth of it is, which is wild to me that this is controversial, is that you can get better at picking good businesses and niches to invest in and allocate money to good businesses. The founder is very important, and I wouldn't pick a level two founder 
in a level 10 game. I need both to be at least a level eight or above. Um, but I do not invest ever based on this founder so amazing. His idea is kind of okay, but he's going to figure it out or she's going to figure it out. I think that's a complete uh, nonsense lie. And I think the reason that we believe that is because we've been in this, you know, decade plus bull run in which everybody looked brilliant in Silicon Valley. And then we were in this other bull run in technology post 99 in which everybody was brilliant after the crash as well. Um, but I don't think that that will shake out over the next two or three years. You're going to completely fundamentally see a change in how venture capital is allocated, meaning no more blank checks to super charismatic founders. It's going to be like, you what, need to what am I supposed to do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was <laughs> banking on this. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think it's, you know, the part that I find fascinating is that um, VCs have become kind of like cool kids these days, you know, they're like cool on Twitter. Um, it's seen as an interesting job. And if you went and looked at all of the major Silicon Valley firms and, and categorically, these guys are smarter than me in a lot of ways, but I don't like when everybody has a narrative. I'm always looking for where are the numbers in between the narrative and their narrative has been founders first, founders only founders first. Yeah. And that's burned a ton of these poor founders that have raised at asinine valuations, and now they're going to have to pull it back. Mm -hmm. And that's going to hurt a bunch of people in startup land, and they're going to have to figure out what it really means to have ownership as opposed to paper, worthless stock options. Right. So, you know, I've got a lot of tech buddies. Um, and since I've gone down to the direction of, you know, going more tech, right, one thing I've been looking at is like, all right do you want to take on venture capital, right? I've bootstrapped everything I've ever done. And, you know, I've talked to other guys are like, dude, do not take it unless you absolutely need it. What's your take? I think you have to take it intelligently. So um, when we talk about valuations for our companies, you know, we have a seven matrix methodology, which sounds super boring, but it's pretty straightforward. That tells us, is this company reasonable on a valuation standpoint? Is the founding team strong, et cetera? And so we rank all of the companies. And then we say, like, this is what we think the company should be worth. Whereas most founders, you know, they just say, I'm doing a seed round at 20 to 30 million bucks. And like, why? Because that's what the market <laughs> says. Because that's what it is. And I got a term sheet for $50,000 and they said it was worth it. And so, um, yeah, so I just, I'm materially uncomfortable with that. Now, I like to take money actually and apply leverage where I can. So if you had a business where you really think it's a billion dollar business or you mm -hmm. think it is a multiple hundred million dollar business, that means other people probably think that same thing. And if you're competing against a bunch of people who have a lot of money, it doesn't matter how good you are or how charismatic you are. If you're competing against another Amazon with $300 million from Andreessen Horowitz, you're gonna have a hell of a hard time. And so I do think there are certain industries in which you need venture capital mm -hmm. and which it makes sense because then you can blow the competitors out of the water because money is a tool and they have more tools than you. Right, right. And if you do have a good one, you're either going to get competitors who are going to try and compete with you and they're going to go take venture capital to try and catch up. A hundred percent. And in, in these days, like money has almost become a necessity in a lot of tech. You know, it's expensive to grow those businesses. Um, and you need to do it quickly, to your point, because tech changes really quickly. You know, users change quickly. Um, but I think as long as they, they don't raise at crazy valuations and they keep enough money for themselves and their employee pool, it's it's a model that makes a lot of sense. Um, I do think, though, when, when VCs say, like, we're value-added, I'm like, I don't know. Like, are you? <laughs> what are you really doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's what uh, – <laughs> it's funny because – you know, gets in a couple of these um, 
big VC firms like, dude, you know, if we could go get one of these guys in the crypto space, it'd be good, right? Like, I forget what they were, Animoca or something and, you know, a couple others. And uh, some other people are like, no, dude, like they're just, they're going to use their name and just take way more from you, right? And it's like, well, is, aren't they going to have add value and do these things? And they're like, no. <laughs> like, well, what are they going to do? Other than like maybe make an introduction for you, but like, what do you need? Like, you just need to execute your business. Yeah, I think it. Yeah, I think you're right. For most businesses, <laughs> unless the the VC is super niche specific, then maybe that works. So like, you know, if you have a B two B business and you're going to go sell to a bunch of other SaaS companies that are all located at Andreessen Horowitz, mm-hmm. then maybe it makes sense for them because you could just go and add a billion dollars to your bottom line by selling to their portfolio. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I think, you know, you got to ask like, okay, value add, awesome. You're going to tweet about me, you know, and film a YouTube. Like, is that enough? (laughs) Do you have the right audience that's going to make a material difference for me? And I think usually the answer is probably not, but your money's green, so I'm going to take it. Right. So you mentioned you're married. What does your husband do? So he's he's an AI, defense-based AI, um, so he's a smarty pants and he, their, their company is really interesting. They basically, um, if you think about it, the, uh, how would I say this? So they monitor using multiple different data points, uh, maritime vessels. So boats and, um, anything that's maneuvering around the world's oceans. And they basically take satellite imagery and dock imagery and radar and can triangulate one ship from another. And this is really important for things like national defense or if people are fishing in illegal waters. Mm -hmm. And so they get big government contracts to try to determine what one vessel is versus another. And, um, you know, the company, it's, it's definitely early. Um, but I think, what I found in the defense game is like we are in a, a race, an AI race when it comes to defense. And those companies, perhaps is included, um, who win are going to be awarded giant contracts. Mm. And so um, that's what he does. And he used to be a, a Navy SEAL. And so it's really important to him that he stays somewhere within the realm of national defense. Right. Um, that's an important mission for him and the company. Right. So how do you guys balance marriage and everything going on? Yeah. You know, he, he's actually better at it than I am. Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit of a workaholic all the time. I think because he's kissed death multiple times, mm-hmm. he has a different perspective on life. So often when I'm freaking out about my TikToks underperformance, <laughs> he's like, really? Like yeah. what? <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, yeah. He, you know, he's very quick and funny to say, Hey, this company isn't doing that well. Is anybody going to die? And I'm like, turns out nobody dies when a laundromat doesn't work. Also not that big of a deal. And so he's phenomenal at that. Um, I also think, I mean, I know you're married too. We don't have kids yet, but we've like tried to be really thoughtful about our relationship in how we engage on a daily basis. Like I'm traveling today, um, but we talk every single day, no matter if he's traveling or I'm traveling. We have like a little check-in process every single night. It's called team that we do. Um, and he's really good at ritual. You know, if you think about Navy SEALs, they have a lot of rituals continuously. And those rituals create motto and creed and unity and teamwork and make a mission bigger than just, you know, we have to go out and take out this target or protect this location. Mm-hmm. And so he's really good at creating like our motto for our marriage as like a bigger mission than just, hey, 50% of marriages is end in divorce. I like you right now. I think we should probably still hang out, <laughs> you know? So it's, I think I give him all the credit. That's cool. Super cool. You know, you mentioned AI. Um, one of the books I'm reading right now is about AI because I've become increasingly more 
fascinated by it, knowing that to your point, there's like a huge race right now with literally every single tech company to develop AI because it's like whoever does it is going to win and take everything. Yep. Yeah. Well, so the company that he works for is called Modern Intelligence. And so I get a lot of my knowledge and insight on AI from them. Um, What's interesting is you and I play in what I would call like high ROI and maybe low to median intellect spaces. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have to be wildly intelligent to do a deal better than somebody else. I can be of marginal intellect and do it, right? But when I engage with the people at Modern Intelligence and his team, I mean, Ryan, first of all, they're aliens. (laughs) I think they think I'm an alien too, but they are so smart. It's almost hard to communicate. And so like one of them, I asked him the other day, I'm like, why did you, he's like four years old. He's super young. And he dropped out of college early from a super um, prestigious college. And I was like, why'd you drop out? And he's like, well, they were giving us a lot of homework to do. And the homework uh, stopped me from doing the, the learning that I needed to do. And I was like, I couldn't even contemplate such a thing. And so, <laughs> so um, you know, what's interesting is when you see that level of intelligence, you do realize these people are, you know, they're neurodivergent. Their brain works in a different way than ours do. And what's really intriguing for me is when I have a problem, now I get to go to some of these imbi- individuals and say like, well, my website isn't syncing up. <laughs> you know, they're like, why are you bringing this? To <laughs> yeah. Me? Well, and they, they think it's so they think it's cute. You know, they're like, yeah. this problem is so de minimis. Yeah. And so um, when it comes to VC, I really think VC is cool because it allows those companies to exist. You and I allow the average American ways to make money, get ownership, Mm -hmm. grow their personal wealth. And these companies, like those change the world. Yeah. And so I like being able to balance between the two. But I think you're right. The the AI, I mean, we're just scratching the surface. And in Austin, you know, it's incredible. Some of the people that we engage with there, like there's a firm called 8VC that's a venture capital firm founded by Peter Till too. Um, And then two other gents that Chris, my husband has become good friends with and seeing like the technology that they're using at the forefront, it will trickle down in different ways to real estate and to small businesses. And that I think is going to be huge for us. Like how many realtors do you know that still use business cards or like paper ledgers, or you actually have to sign the mortgage documents. Mm -hmm. Like all those little things will get changed by these crazy intelligent things. Right. It's my prediction. What I'm trying to wrap my head around is as I go to compete in the tech space, because that's where I'm going. Mm -hmm. And coming from, like you said, the average American guy dream. And by no means do I have extreme intellect. Um, I get off, I get through going through with charisma and stuff and just figuring it out. Green hair. Yeah, and green hair, right? So I'm just thinking like, on one hand, looking at business, right? I, I think I could do marketing and sales better than like a tech guy who's trying to start his business, right? But on the other hand, you know, these tech guys are so smart, right? And so I could hire them and do those things and that's great. But I'm just like thinking, which is more important for one of those companies to succeed? Is it their ability to market and get their product out there? Or is it their ability to just create something that no one else can create, or if that's even true, that anyone else can't create it or not. I'm just like trying to think which is more powerful. Chicken or egg? Yeah. Well, I think it depends what type. When it comes to defense companies like Modern Intelligence, like they really shouldn't do a lot of sales and marketing because right. they yeah, they don't need to. They want to go head to head with you know the head of certain programs of the DOD, the Department Department of Defense, and that's how they're going to make a change. So they have to create a 
superior product and then have superior relationships into the government. And that's how they'll win. Um, and But for a lot of these tech companies, I think there's a mixture. I mean, when I look at the the founders that we invest in, we have a venture capital fund that invests in the infrastructure of boring businesses, so the tech that backs boring businesses. Um, one of our seven criteria is distribution. So, you know, level 10 founder with a level two distribution, uh, I'm going to choose actually the level 10 distribution with maybe not a level two, but maybe a level six founder. Distribution meaning their influence. Yeah, their ability to market and sell, their path yeah. to actual profits in the door. Right. And so I think a lot of times tech companies underestimate. And power. that's kind of been my perspective going into it. I'm like, I know how to do sales and marketing. Like I'll get the word out there. I'll figure out how to get us users and I can do that. But the tech side, obviously I'm not an expert in like, and I'll find the guys who are experts, but I'm just thinking like, man, I hear about these guys who are just so smart and they've got these innovative things. And then in my mind, I'm like, how are you going to sell that? You know? yeah, don't, don't, yeah. That's one of my first questions. You know, if you, and, and I think it's a big risk. If you just have a product guy that's obsessing over, uh, you know, oh, the backend algorithms doing this today and we're this much faster than the other guy, but nobody knows about him. Right. Probably not going to do that well. So, uh, you know, I think these days unless I mean, it could be a world changing idea, but even look at Uber, you know, super product centric company, um, with a lot of tech behind it, but they had to market like hell to drivers. Oh, yeah. Right. And so I, I think watching some of those shows is cool for entrepreneurs to see too. What now those are crazy charismatic outliers, but how much of it is that the founder is completely irrational and has relentless pursuit of focus versus I'm a really good product guy. And I think you want this instead of this Yeah, eight times out of 10. Yeah. I mean, cause you're going into something that should 99% fail. Right. right. And so you have to have irrational belief that like, yeah, you know what? We are going to be like this thing that changes the world. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, you know, I think, you know, this too, but I think that running a com company requires a masochist. Like you have to be able to take pain and like it. <laughs> and most people don't like pain, oddly enough. Um, and so, you know, I want those founders that like cannot, like they're like vacation, what anyway, sh sh this is what I'm focused on today, you know? And, and those are kind of crazy humans um, that are so obsessed with what they're doing, they won't stop. And um, so I think you're right. You need, you do need minimal viable, minimum viable product and the ability to attract intelligent people that believe you're, your vision, that's probably most important. But then you also need that just like relentless marketing sales and and pursuit. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So for you, you know, it seems like obviously you came from the Wall Street world. You already developed your skills as an investor, as an operator, as an analyst and all these things. And now you're going after that distribution side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I didn't realize this. Naval talks about it, but the four levers uh, the four different types of leverage, right? From first there was labor, which like originally was slaves, then became employees. <laughs> then there was capital, which was created sort of with the banking system, which is how the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds all got their massive amount of cap of, of wealth. Um, then there was code, right? Like uh, Bill Gates and uh, Microsoft and Elon. And then, which was an army essentially of, of robots online, let's call them instead of humans. And then there became audience, right? Which is what we're doing now. And so I think if I look at a business and you have all four, if you have 
labor, like you can attract top talent, capital, you can get in money, code, you have some sort of tech enablement on the back end and audience that's going to be a level 10 company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people haven't focused on audience quite yet, but this is the most democratized, meaning anybody can do it. I mean, to, to be able to code, you have to have some level of talent to be able to have capital. You have to have permission, somebody to give it to you. You don't need either of that for audience. So I don't glorify it. Like, you know, do I think that Kim Kardashian with a hundred million followers or whatever she has on Instagram is more powerful than Bill Gates, who probably has a million followers on Instagram? No, I think Bill Gates is more powerful than Kim Kardashian. So I think there are degrees to the four and I don't glorify influencers like this is the only thing that you should be. Absolutely not. I think everybody will eventually become irrelevant and nobody will care about you after you die. I totally believe that. Um, But I do think that pairing audience with those first three is a huge differentiator. And I think even now Bill Gates would agree with that, although before, you know, he doesn't care about that because, you know, there's been lots of narrative about Bill Gates lately that would have been different if he controlled the narrative publicly. And he didn't. He was more private. Right. You know, what's interesting about the the death narrative is, you know, Hormozzi's big on that too. And, you know, for me... I've looked at this multiple ways. Um, you know, as a Christian, I believe afterlife and everything else, but I'm looking at the social media side of things and I'm like, I wonder if that's going to be true or not. Because if you look at, like, no matter what you believe happens after, I'm like, if you just look at, okay, people were remembered from books, you know, long ago, because that was the only way you could be remembered. And now I'm looking like, dude, I'm on video every single day you know, and this is going to be around in the cloud forever. And who knows what technology there's going to be 50 years from now where they're going to be able to pull those videos and do something else, right? Like, I don't know, right? But I'm just thinking like, man, people are going to be remembered way more than in years past with everything we do today. Because it's just like, you know, my son can go watch all these archive videos of all the Instagram stories I've ever done, right? And like, all these YouTube videos that they'll just live on. And it's like, I'd be curious to see if that premise plays out as technology gets better. Cause if I could go watch say anybody like in history that would, you know, did something cool. Like I would love to know, dude, what was Julius Caesar doing? Right. If he had his IG story, I'm like, dude, that was crazy. <laughs> Can you believe that? Look at him sack and rub. Dude, look at him. He's like, Building this whole place. This is nuts. <laughs> but you that's going to happen. They're going to be like, I saw Cody when she, you know, was at the the Wall Street and then she started on thing. Then she became a billionaire and she did this. And it's like, you have all the data and people can watch it. It's just like, and then they're probably by that point, Elon Musk will have, you know, his Neuralink and you'll be able to download your entire like life in a second. Be like, wow, that was nuts what she did. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. <laughs> I, don't, I think that I like that, that, idea. I also think there's a counterpoint to it to like, so Napoleon would have been like 280 years ago or something like that when he first came on to the planet, which means he's like essentially three generations back ish. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, humans didn't live as long back then, but he's like three people old. And then we've got like Rockefeller who would have been like 150, 160 ish, I would guess back then. Mm -hmm. So he's again, like two and a half people old. And what do we remember about them? We remember, like you said, some of their words and we remember some of the buildings that they erected and things we left behind. So I do believe that some of the stuff we do today is for our legacy. I also think back then there was so much less noise. 
you know, now everybody's online mm-hmm. and everybody's kind of important, but like, is there even a Julius Caesar, a Napoleon of our day? I mean, I think people would argue Elon Musk, but you know, it's a little bit frowned upon to go around sacking entire countries, and, you know, <laughs> changing their names. Right. Um, so I think it'll be interesting. I, but at the end of the day, I guess I don't worry about it that much because we'll be dead. So like, <laughs> who cares? You know, right. even if even if afterlife happens, which I think would be phenomenal. Um, I sort of imagine that my I don't care about what people think about me on the Internet very much. Mm-hmm. I have moments. Don't get me wrong. But by and large, I don't care because um, at the end of my days, like. Instagram video versus TikTok. Do we remember what people did on MySpace versus early Facebook? Like, I think everything sort of becomes irrelevant, but I find a lot of peace in that Mm -hmm. as opposed to, oh no, I'm not important and thus I will do nothing. (laughs) People are going to remember this forever. Yeah. This this failure. But I think Alex and I are friends because we both like, you know, Kierkegaard and these old school existentialists. And I think, you know, my newsletter is called Contrarian Thinking because the most important thing in my opinion, I can do is think clearly. And I like to go to the greats to learn how they thought. Mm -hmm. And I think first principles is psychology. So if we can think first, what does it mean to be a human? How do we progress forward? You have an ethical model from Christianity, obviously. Mm -hmm. Everything else gets easier. Mm -hmm. Less decisions to have to make when you know, hey, I need to not lie, cheat, or steal because that's my foundation first principle, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Makes things definitely easier. So as you build this out, I mean, obviously you're focused on audience. You've already figured out probably the other three. And so, I mean, and you figured out audience too, you know, where do you see yourself taking all of this in the next five years? Yeah. Despite me talking about as existentialism, I think you might have this as well, but I have that, um, deep burning desire to always build something bigger. And I wish, do you ever wish that, um, you were that type of personality where you're like, I'm cool. I'm just going to like hang out today, this week, (laughs) doesn't matter. No interest in the numbers. I've just never been that way. And so when I think about five years, it's always bigger, which maybe is a sickness, but I kind of love it. And, um, and so what my goal is, is I want us to have by the end of the year, this year, I want us to have 5 million followers across all platforms. Mm -hmm. Within three years, I want us to create a million financially free people. And I want that quantifiable. Like we track it right now, which in financially free means to me, they have income streams that cover their expenses. I want a hundred thousand small business owners that I can say we helped these small businesses exist um, which we track as well. And then I want us to kind of be like the place you go for learning about thinking clearly and cash flowing unconventionally. And I don't know what that looks like yet to your point. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the level 10 exactly is. I just know that I want to reach as many humans as possible. I love it. Yeah. How can people join the movement? Contrarianthinking.co is probably the best spot. That's our website. And then we're on all the socials. Those are in my name, Cody Sanchez, C-O-D-I-E. Um, yeah. And follow along, ask questions. I'm always curious. And then I'm sure they'll see us on these TikToks. I'm gonna make you do that. (laughs) There we go. We got some good TikToks we're going to film. So anyways, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. Cody, you were amazing. Appreciate you coming out to Vegas and, you know, telling me all about these new, now I have a bunch of new ideas, so I'm gonna have to go execute some (laughs) things. But, uh, guys, if you enjoyed it, uh, make sure you're subscribed and we'll catch you on the next one. So you've consolidated. Yep. Why? Too many open doors. Anything that is outside of an ecosystem in which you can vertically integrate those Mm -hmm. businesses, it's pretty difficult. Quality over quantity. He's in the real estate space, getting in the solar space, has SaaS, has a bunch of different things. This guy is a true American dream. We've got Carlos Reyes. If you look at the pattern,